David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Sean Johnson. And you were listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are discussing Edmund Crispin's, Crispin's novel, The Moving Toy Shop, not to be confused with uh, St. Crispin. Crispin's. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which is um, coming up. It's coming it's up. True. Yeah. Yeah. It's this true. month. Yeah, uh, I didn't do that on purpose. What I did do on purpose, however, is put this book after One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, which of oh, course we you. just finished reading and discussing. And this is a different, this is a different vibe. Uh, a very different vibe. Um, this is a book, and I'm gonna turn it over to to Heidi and to Sean here in a second to talk about their their first impressions, their their experiences with this author. It was published in 1946 by uh, Edmund Crispin, who is actually named Robert Bruce Mon- Montgomery. He, uh, his, his pen name was Edmund, Edmund Crispin, which in my opinion is a great pen name. Yeah. It's just hard enough to say to feel truly literary and uh, just uh, rooted enough to feel like it's not, you know, nonsense. Um, he well, he wrote, took it from a mystery uh, novel. Right. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk about that. Yeah, we'll talk about all that in yeah, a minute. Let's um, yeah. I'll, I just want to say he's he wrote a number of books, including two that I have with me here today: "Beware of the Trains," which is a book of short stories featuring uh, Gervasi Fenn, our detective, and then uh, "Holy Disorders." And uh, since we're going to laugh a lot during this this uh, discussion, I, I hope I just thought I'd read to you. I just thought I'd read the description to this other book before we dig in. Just I just think it's I just think it's great. So I got this when I was in England, actually. And uh you can see on the cover, it's got the the bridge of uh size, right? In Oxford. And it says, Holy Disorders takes Oxford Dawn and part-time detective Gervasi Fenn to the town of Tolnbridge, where he is happily catching butterflies until the cathedral organist is murdered, giving Fenn the chance to play sleuth. But what was the motive? The man didn't have an enemy in the world, and even his music was inoffensive. <laughs> Could he have fallen foul of a nest of German spies or of the local coven of witches, ominously rumored to have been practicing since the 17th century? <laughs> so, you know. Wow. Edmund Crispin. Ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> it's great. Um, so this is one of those books that P.D. James called one of her five most riveting crime novels. And she said of Crispin that he is one of the few mystery writers able to combine situational comedy and high spirits with detection. So yeah. that's, uh, I think that's a pretty good summary. But when even the likes of P.D. James are, you know... That's uh, high praise. Shouting from the, from the rooftops, uh, the chapel tops, uh, about how, how, uh, how good you are, it's worth reading. Now, he's not somebody who is terribly well-known in America, which is why I really wanted to read this book. And I'll just say, on the last episode on Ivan Denisovich, Heidi, you and Tim and I talked about the idea of if there's one book that would like represent who you are, what would it be? It was related to a question somebody asked. I don't even really know how we got there. The question, the, the topic was, is there a book that if someone didn't like, then it meant they don't like you? Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Right. So you both had an answer right away. You said Anne of Green Gables, which is mm-hmm. it's just perfect. And then I think Tim said um, Anna Karenina or Brothers yeah. or, or uh, Common Punishment. Anna right? Karenina is the right yeah. answer to that. Yeah. <laughs> and I wasn't sure. Tim suggested that it was Lonesome Dove. And rereading this book again for, I guess, I don't know, maybe the third time, it might just be this. Because I could what, see that. Woodhouse for me is an, another possibility. I, yeah. 
I absolutely love P.G. Woodhouse. I read at least one of his books every year, if not many books. They're the books I turn to when I need to get outside of my my own head, <laughs> when I need to get away from just the anxiety or busyness or whatever, you know, however you want to put it, I turn to P.G. Woodhouse. And so when I discovered Edmund, Edmund Crispin, which combines the sort of <laughs> satirical, wry, but literate sense of humor of Woodhouse with my favorite genre, the detective novel or the crime novel, it was like, it was like a, a spiritual. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I Plus all was... the literary references in there. Oh yeah. yeah. And that's what to, to me for this, for this show, it's like the literary references uh, combined with all those other elements. It, it was like transcendent for me. Um, and I, and so I, I do love this book. And I think if you were to read this book and, and just find it boring, then you need to read more. We you need to read more, but also <laughs> we might have a hard time being friends. Um, so everybody who listens to this show, if you find it boring, um, hit us up on Facebook. Don't Don't let us. me know who to to unfriend on on, on social media, who to block. Okay, um, Heidi, I want to hear from both of you on your first impressions, whether you've ever read Crispin before, that sort of thing. And while you do that, I'm going to take care of something, but I will be listening. But I'm also taking care of something. You'll see in a minute. All right. Sounds good. I love this book so much. And I've never read Crispin before. You've recommended this to me. And as I always do, the minute David recommends to me a book, I generally buy it, but I don't always read it right away. (laughs) And so it happened to be a time, David, confession, that you were recommending a lot of books to me. Mm. And other books got read first. And so here we are. But I regret that now. Because I love this book. Okay, great. So, 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 told I you wish so. I read it right <laughs> away. Success. <laughs> Sean, what about you? You who are sitting there in an Argyle sweater vest looking yeah, like an right. Oxford Don yourself. Yeah, that is yeah, true. Yeah. You are a little bit of an Oxford Don. In the room where students come and I deal with them and send them away. Yep. Uh, <laughs> That's ominous. I, I had never read this book. I had not, I really. I think I was tangentially familiar with Crispin, but uh, I have not read any of his works. And I, too, was uh, more than pleasantly surprised by how enjoyable the read has been. You, you're pleasantly, you're, you're just like... I like this, like, passive voice that you're using about this. <laughs> I am pleasantly surprised. At no, how, more than pleasantly surprised. More than I thought how enjoyable it is. <laughs> I thought, okay. I'm like, I, I love this book so much. I think it's hilarious. I'm trying to, I don't want to gush. Funny. I know. And Me, here's the I'm reason gushing. why. I guess I'm a little bit gun shy. I shouldn't be because I trust David. And and if you have read these books and like them, Suspicious. that's a good sign. Huh. But I'm only halfway through the book and I don't want to overcommit and then be disappointed. So I'm going to, I want to tell you something. I'm just going to okay. give a little preview it's of the It's just me. It's just me okay. against these two right now. No, 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 I'm happy to gush. <laughs> I've been... Go- I, had, I, no, I, I know. I, I know. I'm, it's I'm just all about both this of you book. are this always hedging like... your bets, and I'm all in all the time. Okay, yeah, I was going to say, I have hedged my bets on other books on this show, but if you... I'm just going to say, if you don't think this book is good, you're wrong. <laughs> I'm just going to make one of those statements. That's encouraging. Um, but I want to tell you something. It's, the, it's killing it so far. At the no end, you're going to love something about this. Strangers on a Train, Alfred Hitchcock movie, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's based on the Patricia Highsmith psychological right. thriller, right? right? I love Patricia Highsmith. Very different vibes to what we're getting yeah. here with Edmund Crispin. But you know the ending? Uh-huh. 
at the end of Strangers on a Train, the movie, uh-huh. there is a key, very dramatic plot point ripped straight from oh, this book. No way. Alfred Hitchcock, in addition to P.D. James, loved Ed Ben Crispin and loved this book. And um, he pulls something from this book and puts it in I a think psychological I thriller. So you'll, fantastic. when we get yeah. there, you'll you'll recognize it right away. Um, I love it. Yeah. So before yeah, we no, get... I, I really have I really have enjoyed it. It it feels like some sort of mix between yeah, like a like a Peter Whimsy novel and a Noel Coward play. Uh, and all oh, yeah. in good ways. Yeah, it's just been yeah. it's been really enjoyable. I think I think Sayers and Woodhouse are a good a good combination. Like yeah. I, I yeah. people have sometimes yeah. and I've even said Agatha Christie just because it's a detective novel, but I think the Sayers Novels. Sayers is a better is more, comparison. I yeah, think. More yeah, yeah. Because of the detectives, sort of, and the place, the fact right. that That's the true. place right. is That's such true. a big deal in this novel seems yeah. very Sayers. Yeah, and when I was in, when we were in Oxford, I was thinking a lot about this play, and like having been there, rereading it after having been there, it's been like really delightful. It's I'm yeah, like my full on Anglophile uh, <laughs> energy is really strong this week. Before we get going, speaking of Anglophiles, we need to tell everyone about our sponsor this week because I mentioned them last week. Uh, Sean, I don't know if you know about these guys, but it's Ecstasis Magazine, and that's spelled E-K-S-T-A-S-I-S. Yeah, I'll yeah, link yeah. in the show notes as well. They are a digital cathedral of sorts, helping a generation of Christians admire beauty and tune their spiritual and aesthetic affections. They aim to arouse the aesthetic affections of Christians, inviting and empowering them to be creative and nurturing the future of uh, Christian writers and creatives. They have an annual print journal. They've got monthly digital collections and ambassador program. I was program. just on their website recently l- reading a great essay on food called On Hunger and Loving Deeply. Oh, man. Well, what timing? We didn't... Yeah, I, or no, didn't, that's, that's the subtitle. It was called A Burning Stomach, A Fickle Globe. Oh, that's a great Sean time. mildly enjoyed it. But only yeah, when yeah, I was like, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I, I I got to the end and I thought I can gush about this now. It was good. It's you know, it's like when he has Sean has a meal, he 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 won't gush about it until he gets to the end of the meal in case he just yeah. like winds up and dead or poisoned or something. Everything that was wrong with it that he, but only if he prepared it. And he's like, well, only well, if I, mean, I prepared it. Yeah, if it's somebody else, are, I won't do that about other people's food. Right. <laughs> no, you're like, you praise people to a fault when it's when it's other people's food. Oh yeah, yeah. This hamburger <laughs> helper. Stellar. Life-changing. Thank you so much. Anyway, so Ecstasis Magazine, they have uh, all kinds of great materials. And like as we talked about last week, their print materials are beautiful. And uh, so check out what they're doing. It's ecstasismagazine.com, uh, where social media flattens. Ecstasis aims to deepen and meet people where they seek inspiration, merging the heart of beautiful orthodoxy, a poetic lens of faith, skillful storytelling, and visual levity. And again, that is ecstasismagazine.com. Now, it works out because uh, their editor... Connor, I think I think I can say that. Just say his name out loud. He's a great guy, and uh, they did. We did an event with them in the shop back in the spring, at one of their Ecstasis cafes. Uh, but he recently just moved to England, so uh, that works out. Good timing. He's also is an is an Anglophile, so uh, um, more committed than you, apparently. Yeah, he he actually got up and moved there. <laughs> um, his his job, I think, allows him to uh, be on the road more, like be gone from. America. Mine is a little tethered um, <laughs> like true. by physical things, physical media in a physical place. Anyway, we are really grateful to them for partnering with us uh, this fall. They're helping sponsor and make these episodes possible. So check, please check out what they're, what they're up to. Again, the, the link is in the show notes. Do you guys see my edition here? Of I have that same edition. 
<laughs> That's really cool. It's a so this one is the it's the I wish our listeners could see it. Penguin Books. You can f- find this on Threat Books or something. I'm Did sure. you get the box set? No. I so I bought this in England for four pounds. Nice. Um I because I saw a lot of his stuff is harder to find in America. And this is the 1958 Penguin Books edition. So they did their or you've everybody's probably seen their orange mid-century editions, but this is the a green one. And uh this has been I've really enjoyed reading it in this, even though I actually really do like the the layout and typography of the the newer ones. Yeah, it's not bad at all. Yeah, I got that I got that green edition in a set with uh a Chesterton, a Father Brown mystery, oh, a Josephine Tay. Um, that's a great box set there were there were a couple of those yeah it was really good so it's funny because mine actually says on the bottom not for sale in the usa (laughs) um okay let's let's dig into this a little bit and it's a a little not really sure exactly where to start part of me wants to say should we just read funny lines (laughs) because there's a lot of really funny one there's gotta be a time for that yeah but heidi what do you think like you're talking about how delightful this is and how much fun it is and how you've been reading a lot of Boethius and this is a nice uh, change of pace. What do you think yes, it works the best about this book? Like it's good at a lot of things, but what do you think it's best at? Um, It's the juxtaposition between the like effervescent, lighthearted banter and the serious situation of hunting down a murderer. Mm. That's what I yeah. think it is. <laughs> There was somebody that said it's a book that it's a comedy of murder. I th- or I think yeah. the first edition said a comedy a of comedy murder of murders. The- yeah. 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 <laughs> that's a perfect. And that's and like to deepen that, it's you know it's I think it's it it's your dad David. It's Andrew Kern who says that the one of that the goal of an education is to get all the jokes. And I love that. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that applies perfectly to this book. There's so many. Like their conversations about like the worst things in literature is so unreadable great. books. I read up, yes, <laughs> like those awful gabblers, Beatrice and Benedict. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like letting everyone in Dostoevsky, like yeah. worst characters in literature. It's so great. Yeah, and but it's the characters you're supposed to like, but you but that's are, right, but are not <laughs> yeah, all of the hilarious. women in Jane Austen. <laughs> um. So it's that. So I think it is that juxtaposition thing. And also then the depth that it adds to or the depth of humor or yeah. I don't know, yeah. is it depth? Like intellectual depth of the humor is really fun. Like it's, and that's the juxtaposition too. the humor with the intellectual death, depth, death. Haha. And death. Yeah. yeah, And death. So it's that, that's what makes it work. It's so great. And he doesn't try to explain his jokes, right? Like calling the right. two, the two, like you've you got, a, it, you there's a lot. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of, um, tropes that show up in this book that come from other mystery novels so like the two guys who follow them around the two like hulking film noir kind of brutes right and he just calls them Scylla and Charybdis and that immediately makes it original and he doesn't explain it and it's hilarious right well and he makes he takes all these shots at us as readers that are hilarious shot right like oh you're gonna attack coincidences (laughs) just right when I'm thinking wow there's a lot of coincidences in this novel and all of a sudden I'm in the joke right Right. yeah um and it's great Sean what do you think works uh I like that it is and uh maybe this would if you I'm trying to decide now if you have to be a you probably have to be a reader of mystery fiction 
to some degree for all of it to work for you because he's he's writing in a time he's writing in the golden age of detective fiction when probably some of this is more uh in the in the literary air but uh, i like that he is um yeah sort of jauntily self-referential that there are <laughs> the, that bit where uh he's throwing out lines and uh and he says oh i'm just uh trying to come up with a title for crispin <laughs> i'm just i'm just throwing out possible titles that the author can give to this book uh those <laughs> those are great those are great lines uh and i like that uh well actually first we we need to have a conversation because <laughs> i have been i have i have been pronouncing to myself the name of the detective as gervais same so this is a good question and i don't know this for sure but i went and looked and saw okay. people other okay. people pronouncing it gervasi but i don't know i'm not a hundred percent certain that's actually okay. right oh man okay. let's just call him fen fen right thank detective you but i just fen. I had to, I had Dumb. to be somewhat at ease in my mind. I'm not, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I like I like too that Fen is not omnicompetent. Go he on. has he ha- well he has his own quirks and not not having read any other Crispins and forgetting that these were uh, the Gervais Fen mystery novels. I initially wasn't sure who the smart person was going to be right? or who the right. sleuth was going to be right uh, and it was only over time that i realized oh yeah fen's the fen's the sleuth because he's absent-minded and he has ridiculous quirks like his affection for his car uh and he comes across like the the sidekick mm-hmm. in other novels of this time uh the sort of uh, confident, magnanimous fellow that helps the main character through a series of barriers and boundaries and, and whatnot. Uh, sort of like the like the the benevolent version of Rex Matram or something. <laughs> but but he's he's turning out to be you know the main agent, and uh, I've I've enjoyed that. That's that was sort of a gradual development, uh, and that he. Um, is often as in the dark as we are and not one of those obnoxious detectives that always seems to know a little bit more than they're telling you. Yeah, I mean, he's there's a lot of detective tropes that he's kind of having fun with, right? Like right. whether it's... He even has that joke where he's like, Sherlock would have figured this out, you know, in a <laughs> particular way, but his, he did it in his own way. So he he's playing with a lot of those tropes. And apparently, like Crispin was really, really well-read in the genre. So he was really into a guy named John Dixon Carr, I think is his name, who is very famous for his locked room mysteries. Yeah. And those are all being reprinted by Mysterious Press right now, I think. But he had a detective called Gideon Fell in there. And so a lot of people think that Fenn is based on a combination of Gideon Fell from the Card novels and a Oxford Don who they actually had and like Philip Larkin and Edmund Crispin were super good friends. Right. And so they like studied under this guy at Oxford. Um, and so that's like Larkin as the poet is inspiring a lot of Cadigan in this book. Yeah, sure. So 
he he like he walked in the right circles and was very knowledgeable about so many things but he does he wears that knowledge like it's there and you can kind of roll your eyes at it at the at how often he just drops some reference to some 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 other detective story or some bit of literature but he's doing it so winkingly and knowingly that it makes you feel like you're like like he's hospitable right it's not it doesn't make he doesn't feel like he's being smarter than anybody he's making fun of yeah. people who are acting smarter than everybody it's else it's not an in joke it's a joke that you're in on right and much yeah. like woodhouse yeah that's right like you're all making fun of Wooster together because you know that jeeves is actually the smart one and and you get to make fun of Bertie as you go along. There isn't yeah. a straight like analog for those characters in this book, but um, yeah, um, Heidi. So you, you are a you're a big detective. You love Agatha yes, Christie. I really do. I so love detective. What stories do you love too. the most about detective stories? Um, I do love the puzzle. Um, but for me, they're kind of like comfort reads. I love, <laughs> I love them for the formula. Like, I love that it's always the same formula. Love that you can follow that, but it and it always has a happy ending. Like detective stories are comedies, always right. They always have a happy ending. You always get all of the pieces tied off, and justice is done, and you find out who did it. Um, right. And I find that. Like just really comforting and delightful to read. And I think one of the reasons I like that is because the formula is so set. I don't like like the gritty detective, the gritty modern detective novel that's like determined to try to upset the the um the formula. I don't like those. It's a different formula. Yeah. And I don't and I don't like those. Um yeah. I and I don't like the hunting serial killer ones. I used to read those in college in a different time before I became a more whole human being. Um, but I, I like, yeah, I know. Um, I think that one of the reasons I like them so much is that because they're so formulaic that the smart and really good writers play with that form a lot, like yeah. this one, like Edmund Crispin is doing here. And, um, and the, way that a lot of authors will play with the form is either to make it more intense and I don't tend to like those or to make them funny like this one um and to wink at me as the reader and and I like that a lot um and I really like trying to solve the puzzle I like ones with a lot of characters like this one to me doesn't have quite enough quite enough suspects I wish that it had a little bit more like psychological depth to like the bad guys mm -hmm. so far um uh, it seems pretty like it seems to me that we're going to get to seems to me that the that the villain is really obvious and that the puzzle is how we're going to catch him right um so and that's fine but i prefer more suspects um but because i like like you know me i like to read people and i like to do that in books so i was going to ask you about this exact question or this exact topic because one of the things that I was unsure of going into this reread was whether the puzzle part of it and the mystery aspect of it would offer enough for conversation and for lovers of the genre. Because the for me, you know, so much of what is like a delightful read and the, and the literary references and all the jokes and the comedy and the 
the Englishness of it and all that was what is what really makes, you know, me very positive about this book. Um, but rereading it personally, I think that the puzzle's fairly good. Like I think at least the action writing, so to speak, you know, the the mm-hmm. the, the craft of creating scenes in solving and offering dilemmas and all that kind of stuff works well. What do you think of that, Heidi? Yeah, I think that that's true. There's, again, one of the things that's so great about the detective story is that you do have this form and then you can play with the form. And some of them are more plot-driven and some of them are more character-driven. I tend to like the more character-driven ones and the ones that have a lot of suspects and I have to like read the people and study them and try to figure out who I think did it. I like That's why I like Agatha Christie so much. That's She always has that. Um, right, yeah. And I like Dorothy Sayers for that too, although her suspects tend to be a little bit deeper, less trope driven, you know? Um, So I like the trying to figure out who did it. Um, But I also, I could, I mean, I haven't finished this novel, so I don't know. Um, Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But it, that one another way to play with the form is to kind of do it like Shakespeare does when you know the ending, but the romp is how you get there. Yeah. Um, and it seems to me that this is more like that. And those are really good too. I like those. I think that's fun. Sean, are you a like as big a fan of the genre as Heidi is? I, I don't know if I can say that, but I am a I am a big fan of the genre. Uh, and I do have, just because Heidi's a really big fan of the genre, and uh, she's so committed. And so is David. Both of us love and, yeah, British yeah. crime dramas, which is like a and, weird thing for two people on a three-person <laughs> podcast to be attached to. Yeah. I, I don't think so. I don't think that's true. Uh, and I think that maybe my love is almost equal to yours, but I don't gush about it as much, so it's not going to come off that well, way. Well, that's just like uh, forever going to be true about life <laughs> between you. But it is true for me too, Heidi, that I... I tend to gravitate to books like this when I need, because I read a, a lot of books all of the time. Uh, and often, it's not that I don't enjoy that, but often it's also somewhat compulsory. Like I'm reading for my job and uh, jobs. And often that reading is complicated and difficult. Yeah, it demands close attention. Yeah. And so I, I like uh, something formulaic. My go to, of decompression reads are detective novels and spy novels and because they're both formulaic in their own way and uh, they present a kind of puzzle that you can sort of like uh, if you if you've been doing taxing mental work and you can just take a break and fiddle with some kind of physical puzzle you know try, you know twist a rubik's cube a few times or try and get that ring off of that rope or whatever it is it's something more tangible and limited that your mind can work on. And I think it just must use a different part of your, of your brain. And uh, it's really relaxing because it's still an activity that I enjoy, but uh, it's not taxing in the same way that some of that other reading is. Uh, so I do, I do love uh, detective stories for that reason. And I have some really uh, deep, deeply felt pet peeves about detective fiction and maybe this is not unique to me but one of the things that i really hate and also why i don't want to commit to enthusiasm about a mystery that i haven't finished uh, is when the solution when the when the reader is not presented with the with enough information to solve the mystery 
Now, if it's a really clever mystery and I get all the facts and I still don't figure it out, that's great. But uh, when the when there's some sort of like deus ex machina or hidden piece of information or evidence that is produced by the by the main character at the last page of the novel, uh, I hate that. And it makes me if I feel betrayed and I want to throw the whole book away uh, because there was this uh, deception the whole time that maybe I I could uh, if I could attend in the right ways or if I could read the people uh, well enough, maybe I could also figure out what what happened here, either who it was or how it was done. And when that's actually been withheld the entire time, it's so, so maddening. So. Crispin does something that's a little different than the way I think of Chris, uh, like Agatha Christie, for example, because every now and then, Fenn kind of gives you a summary of what he's thinking at that point in the investigation. Yeah, that's true. And now true. we're looking like 12 hours into the investigation, right? And most right. of it has been spent locked up in cupboards or chasing, you know, beautiful well, blue-eyed that, girls through the streets. And Crispin does this smart thing with the two, with the pairing of the characters too, because one of them is a little slower. He's lagging behind a bit. Uh, I guess it's like a Watson in that regard. And so it creates a justification even for Fenn doing that. Uh, right. Somebody has to, somebody says, yeah. okay, tell, catch me up again. What are we thinking? Right. And uh, it doesn't seem out of place for him to say that. Yeah. If you get Christy, a lot of the times it all leads up to like, I mean, she even started to riff on this later and satirize herself, but it kind of all leads up to Poirot being in a room and oh, doing yeah. a big reveal but he hasn't really been updating you along the way. He's been nope. able to get the scenes where he's <laughs> gathering information. So you, as you said, you're privy to conversations or investigation. Right. But he's not saying, okay, to this point, this is what I think. But here with Fenn, we're getting that, which in some ways leads me to uh, believe that for him, he's not necessarily, in, in a way, it's kind of like a uh, misdirection, I think. But in other ways, he's trying to, I th- I think, allow it to be funny. I think that kind of allows you to just enjoy the humor, even as yeah, you're trying to I like solve right. the puzzle. And I don't, and if, uh, so Christy tends to show you all the puzzle pieces, but then not show you the progress of putting them together. Uh, Crispin here seems to kind of show you the puzzle as it's partially completed. The thing that I hate is when, 999 pieces have been put together and then the author pulls a piece out of her pocket and it's like oh yeah bet you're looking for this one yeah right yeah <laughs> yeah does this bother you too yeah for sure i don't like that and i don't like like there's lots like you sean there's lots of things i don't like about I, I, like i'll read a lot of detective stories and then there's plenty of them that I'm like, this just wasn't good. Yeah. And that's one of them. Um, hard to write a good one. It's yeah, really it's hard to write a good one. I've never tried. And I don't think I ever will. I will just read them. <laughs> <laughs> but I I also, like I said, I, I don't, I I prefer when I don't know the answer. Like I don't like like the manhunt mysteries all the mm-hmm, time. Mm-hmm. Um, when you know who it is and you're just trying to like find them, they've disappeared in some way. Um, yeah, those ultimately that's a, become more like thrillers. 
Yeah. Yeah, And I think there's maybe a little bit of that here, but there is the biggest mystery to me is the toy shop. Right. Right. Like that is there. That just feels completely impossible. Like there's no way to solve that. And so I'm really excited about that. That's really creative. Yeah. And and it's a mystery that's still been withheld from us, even as the, the other mysteries seem to be coming together. Even if it's, um, even if the, villain is predictable, which maybe not, maybe there's a twist, even if that, like how are we going to solve this problem that is put before, before us? Um, and I just think that's creative and cool. I like that. I like it when there's just something there that's like unsolvable to my mind, even if the other things are pretty easy to put together. Um, that's, and, and that to me is what makes this the mystery delightful, not just the character of of our two protagonists who are obviously great. So one of the things that I like about this book is that the the comedy and the literary references are could almost are distraction, but could also be clues. And so I'm always uh, trying yeah. to think right, about like the like, Edward Lear poems. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. The, and there's that one of the things I love too is there's all these references that again he doesn't explain. Like there's that one about Iphigenia and it's absolutely hysterical, and I couldn't remember exactly how that plays out in the original like Greek story. Um, but but it doesn't matter because just using the reference itself in that way is so like it's like you talk to someone who would do that in normal speech, you'd be like, "Come on," and he knows that, right? And so yeah. it becomes it becomes humorous because it's like something Woodhouse, I mean, uh, Bertie Wooster would say, yeah. Go ahead, Heidi. Oh man, just the humor. I just can't even like describe how great it is. I love the character of Mr. Hoskins. I love him so much. <laughs> I love that that's like this drunk guy in a bar defending Jane Austen. I the just indignant Janeite. Yes. That's so funny. And then like, he spends even, like go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, I'm I could I won't stop. Like, there's just so many, there's so many moments of like, act, not just like chuckle, chuckle. That was funny. But like, I'm laughing out loud. Reading defending Mr. The, Collins. <laughs> the the truck driver who's reading D.H. Lawrence. Yeah. So great. Oh, man. And then just because I'm, uh, it's just the industrial revolution. <laughs> That's why I don't. Yeah. I was just trying to find my that. wife. <laughs> That's one of my favorite, like, that, um, where is that? Are you looking for the 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 truck scene? Yeah, because they're talking about um the life force. The life, yeah, the life yeah, this, force. Like, this is the chase, right? Where he says yeah. industrial civilization. <laughs> it's the right, curse of our yeah. age. So oh. still, <laughs> I love the um yeah, industrial civilization is the curse of our age. Cadigan stared at him. We've lost touch with nature. We're all <laughs> pallid. He gazed with severity at Fenn's ruddy countenance. Like the little asides the narrator gives us, and like the layers of humor. We've lost, we've lost touch, he paused threateningly, with the body. And, and then Fenn goes, I haven't. Thanks, he's got the Oxford dot on his lap. Enlightenment. Oh, and then, then the next line is, enlightenment was upon Gaskin. <laughs> because, still reading Lawrence, eh? <laughs> Yeah, R, that's right, says the driver. He felt about him and produced a greasy edition. <laughs> the specificity of it being greasy of sons and lovers for general inspection. And then he put it away again. 
we've lost touch with sex, the grand primeval energy, the dark, mysterious source of life. Not, he added confidently, could have ever, <laughs> ever exactly felt that, begging your pardon when I've been in bed with the old woman. But that's because industrial civilization, civilization has got to me and it's got me in its clutches. <laughs> and then, and then Cadigan goes, I should, oh, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> so it's like what he says, but then it's everybody else responding ups the ante of the humor and then the narrator is also commenting on it so it's oh, not yeah. just one line of humor it's it's with that's where woodhouse is yes. so good it's not that just a wooster says something it's that that whatever jeeves says back is equally as funny right so oh i shouldn't say that <laughs> and then it just ends then they just got it and then and then i love that he goes they were approaching a fork in the road. And so it's like, even the, the narration is going to take us off in the conversation. And he gives us a funny little quip that does take the narration off. But he's also like, yeah, we're leaving this conversation behind now. Yep. So yeah, it's very on. like structurally knowing um, in, in a way that I think is really clever. Um, let, let's just take a minute. Is there any other funny bits that you like? Like, Sean, what, you got anything marked in your book? Man, I definitely had that passage marked. Oh, the the scene in... St. Christopher's Chapel yes, is, is really great. As they all file in to the prayer service, uh, he says, the president of the college is there. He watches them come in. He frowned still more when a few moments later, Fenn and Cadigan arrived, noisily whispering, and he openly scowled when after a brief interval, they were followed by two men in dark blue suits, whose knowledge of the Anglican liturgy was plainly sketchy to a degree. And the, which is in itself, uh, a pretty mundane comment, uh, but just just the scenario that he sets up there with that uh, understated observation is really funny. Uh, that a a low speed chase is unfolding in a prayer service. <laughs> it's so great, <laughs> and an Anglican prayer service where where manners and proper order are of the utmost importance. Uh, yeah, it's it's a great scene there. I love when he's then gets involved in the choir and Fenn is singing and he's bad. And then after they leave, the, the choir director is like, well, now that the English department has left us alone. <laughs> Heidi, you got anything? Yes, but I can't find it. Where do they meet with, um, oh, this with Rossiter? Um, when I they're think, having oh. that, they're having like the battle the of the wills. The candid solicitor, I think it's chapter three. They yeah. they're having the battle of the wills over his like disguise or his fake identity. Oh right, that is. I was definitely laughing at that. Or even that first scene um, when he's asking for the money to go on vacation. Oh, I love it. <laughs> so he's much. got the revolver. That, oh my gosh, is <laughs> a whole thing about how he has to go on vacation. I um. Okay, hold on. I gotta read this. Um, In chapter one, the episode of the prowling it's poet. All hilarious. Twenty-five pounds. Twenty-five pounds. Cadigan waggled his revolver menacingly. How can I have a holiday in 25 pounds? I'm getting stale, my good Irwin. I'm sick to death of St. John's Wood. I have no fresh ideas. I need a change of scene, new people, excitement, adventures. Like the later Worsworth, I'm living on my spiritual capital. <laughs> the later Worsworth, Mr. Stone giggled. <laughs> and then suspecting he had committed an impropriety, fell abruptly silent. <laughs> 
<laughs> then Cadigan, I've been calling him Cadogan, but I will change it to Cadigan. But Actually, Cadigan that one I don't pursued, know. So. His homiletic, regardless, homiletic is such a great yeah, word there. I know. I crave, in fact, for romance. That is why I'm learning to shoot with a revolver. That is also why I shall probably shoot you with it if you don't give me 50 pounds. <laughs> keep Mr. going. Spode's stepped yeah, back keep going. I'm becoming a vegetable. I'm growing old before my time. The gods themselves grew old. When Freya was snatched from tending the golden apples, you, my dear Erwin, should be financing a luxurious holiday for me instead of quibbling in this paltry fashion over 50 pounds. Perhaps you'd like to stay with me for a few days at Caxton's Folly. Can you give me adventure, excitement, lovely women? These picaresque fancies, said Mr. Spode. Of course, there's my wife. He would not have been wholly unwilling to sacrifice his wife to the regeneration of an eminent poet. Or for that matter, to anyone for any reason. Elsie could be very trying at times. And it goes on. I was like crying. It's oh, so yeah. funny. Well, nope, so oh, it's great. It's so great because the book opens with the sentence: Richard Cadogan or Cadogan yeah. raised his revolver, took careful aim, and pulled the trigger. The right. explosion rent the small garden, and like the widening circles which surround a pebble dropped into the water, created alarms and disturbances of diminished intensity throughout the suburb of St. John's Wood. So it's like he gives you the a customary like a gunshot goes off, someone shoots. That's right. It's the it's the Chekhov's gun thing <laughs> that is right. going and off immediately. And he makes a reference to yeah. Chekhov in that conversation. Yeah, that's right. He says, we're not in a Chekhov story. <laughs> yeah. By the end of the first paragraph, though, you kind of know that you're in a different story because it says, Richard Cadigan went up to the target and inspected it in a dispirited sort of way. It bore no mark of any kind. I missed it, he said thoughtfully. Extraordinary. Oh, man. Even oh, the uh, note, like that, even the note when I first opened the book, like the author's note is so oh, great. Yeah. Yeah, None but the most blindly credulous will imagine the characters and events in this story to be anything but fictitious. It is true that the ancient and noble city of Oxford is, of all the towns of England, the likeliest progenitor of unlikely events and persons. But there are limits. <laughs> <laughs> so great. And, and then like... Mr. Spode of Spode, Nutling, and Orlick, publishers of high-class literature. <laughs> oh, it's so great. Uh, I, found, I found one of the sort of meta comments that I found pretty funny. Uh, they're still discussing whether Cadogan needs to go turn himself into the police. And uh, he says, if there's anything I hate, it's the sort of book in which characters don't go to the police when they've no earthly reason for not doing so. <laughs> right, yeah. And it's then Fenn says, you've got an earthly reason for not doing so immediately. The pubs are open. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. That's great. But and then, you know, even the toy shop thing, which is sort of the mystery. I mean, that I don't know if you saw the the um, there's a there's a note somewhere. Maybe it's not in the book, actually. But that comes from a Alexander Pope poem. Oh, Um. I did not know this. I did not get all the jokes. I need to be better educated. So there is a line. Okay, the title comes from The Rape of the Lock. Oh. With varying vanities from every part, they shift the moving toy shop of their heart, is the couplet. Nice. So you can imagine Crispin reading that, and that just kind of gets stuck in his head at some point, and he imagines this idea of the moving toy shop. that's, That's perfect, too, because The Rape of the Lock is... You know, a a farce, like a faux epic, 
Uh, right. Oh, right. Yeah. That's pretending part, yeah. to be far more serious than it is because mm-hmm. it's about a crime that doesn't turn out to be very significant. <laughs> right. Yes. I don't point. know if that portends uh, the end of this, this story. I mean, there's a dead body. So surely I guess this crime really is significant. That's great. Hmm. Unless, oh, well, I don't know. Go, no, go ahead. Well, you know, in, in the past, some people have really enjoyed when Tim offers predictions of mystery novels <laughs> to varying degrees of success. Yeah, so if right. you want to just jump in here, since you're, it's, you know, Tim's not here, but you're here. If you want to throw your hat sure. in the prediction I, ring. I mean, I don't, I can't imagine, I can't fathom right now the bizarre motive for doing this. But if, if for some reason the woman faked her own death, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I don't know. But there's a, there's a whole complex web here that I, I haven't totally wrapped my head around. I guess that's the point. Mm-hmm. So as we work our way to the end of this episode, what are you going to be looking toward? Like, what are you looking forward to? Is it just, oh, the resolution, the end of the puzzle? Heidi, what, for you, is that the big deal? Oh, I am like looking forward to laughing my head off more at the comedy of this novel. I can't wait. I love Fen. I love, I I, I can see Richard Cadigan in my head. I love the fact that he looks like he's like earnest and supercilious, but he's a romantic soul. <laughs> I'm looking forward to more banter. Um, I kind of don't care who did it, but I am looking forward to the puzzle. And I think that's another one. I love this. I really like this story. If it wasn't funny, I think I would quibble a little bit because I I want to care about who's dead. That's always like, I want there to be something at stake and I'm not sure there's, and I think one of the, one of the reasons I love Agatha Christie is she always gives us characters to care about who will be in trouble in some way if the mystery isn't solved, like yeah. lovers that are parted or something like that. Um, yeah. Or, or this, wrongfully this, accused. Wrongfully or, yeah. accused. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know that. The 12 I people whose that. numbers are dwindling. <laughs> Exactly. Yes. Yes. Like they're all getting picked up one by one on a lonely island. And so in this story, I don't know that I feel that, but maybe I'm supposed to about Sally and maybe that'll change as I go. But she's relatively new in the story of where we're at now. So can I, I wanted to ask you this, actually. Do you think that you mentioned that if it weren't funny, that would bother you? But then also, Uh is it possible that because it's funny, you don't care? Like, do you think that is it possible that the humor itself is making it is just making it that way that's exactly right yeah that to me that is well that is the biggest shining star of this novel is all of the self-aware self-referential humor as well as the satire and the farce like all of it it is how the humor that makes me love it and just how smart it is and how good the writing is um and i want to know about the toy shop but as far as the murder goes i don't know that i care that much yeah well, I think I think this is a book for a certain kind of person. It's a yeah. book for someone who is an incurable reader, for the kind of people who listen to this yeah. podcast, right? For people like us who love books, love mystery fiction, like jokes that are like inside jokes, you know, and yes. you don't feel we like you need to get everything. Right. For so, sure. <laughs> right. And I guess that there's a reason why he's like a little bit of a cult following as opposed to, you know, Agatha Christie or Dorothy Sayers, even, you know, those are like novels for that that are for everybody and crispin is kind of actively not writing for everybody i mean i'm sure he'd love to have been a something you know like an author who was famous and rich i, I guess i don't know that for sure but i mean i think he did okay but well he didn't he he had a second career as a composer 
Right. Yep. For movie scores. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. I kind of feel that way with Sayers, though, sometimes. When I'm reading Sayers, I, I, I realize this might be kind of like blasphemy, but I like hate Gaudy Night. I hate that book a lot. <laughs> and that's everybody's favorite. And so I realize that the problem is with me. Maybe, Heidi. Um, But, uh, well, and I just think her commentary on women is so whiny in that book. I can't stand it. So you like her other books. You just don't like that one. Yeah. Yes. Um, I, um, but you've never had to, you've never had to be locked up in a women's college with all of them. How do you know that Sean? Fair enough. Yeah. You don't know. You don't know me, Sean. (laughs) I could have, um, maybe I gave up my career as a scholar to get married. Listen, (laughs) Sean, if, if that was, if that happened to Heidi, I would haven't had to have had it. I wouldn't have, have, I wouldn't be surprised if suddenly Heidi was like, you know what? I've repressed it. (laughs) <laughs> that is going to happen someday but it won't happen on the air um, <laughs> the um i but with sayers sometimes i'm much more interested in whimsy than i am in the mystery oh yeah, yeah oh i, I think that's that's and, normal um no, well it's not yeah, I mean, for normal. Sayers, I, mean, I think that's is. I think that's yeah. appropriate in the novels. Yeah, I don't yeah. think you're you're reading. Well, she's, yes. she's like in love with whimsy, so yeah, exactly. And you can feel it. Like yeah. he's like a fantasy character that is like you can. There, yeah. Um, Listen, I've had lots of conversations a, with this psych- in the bookstore. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and that's what makes the books so delightful. That's what makes them shine. And the puzzles are great in the stories. Um, but sometimes it's not worth it to me to try to figure out the puzzle when I'm reading Dorothy Sayers because they're so complicated. Um, and yeah. it's it ends up being whimsy that I'm uh, that I'm reading it for. Mm, and right. I think this is one of those this this character, these uh is like that in a in a different way. Um, and I think that's a fine way to drive a detective story. Make the detective shine. Mm. Mm. Or the like I, I think a big part of this book is the setting too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for like, sure. It's so specific and sort of wry about even in it, the way it writes about Oxford, like Broad Street. It keeps making fun of the names being what they are, right? Like right. Broad Street is aptly named, also kind of short. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the the location itself is a bit of a character, and Oxford is famous enough that even if you've never been there, you've seen pictures, or you've you've watched something on. Britbox or BBC or you've been reading about even if you didn't live there at the time so that it kind of he he actually I think does a really good job writing about it in a way that makes it seem vivid um, but also is kind of making fun of how old it is and how serious it is about its architecture and its reason for being and like when he's describing the the students coming out in the morning the first thing in the morning and he's basically like making fun of their traditions and the robes they wear and how the men and the 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 male students do one thing and the female students do another and all those traditions and ways of being are you know he's part of it but also he kind of sees there is a little bit of ridiculousness in it even though that, that the ridiculousness is what sort of keeps it alive kind of mm. like the royal family or democracy <laughs> both there's a little right. bit of ridiculous to it but the ridiculousness is what keeps it alive that's a different yeah. conversation for a different day though Sean no, you were going to say something that's right <laughs> it was it was funny that the way he characterizes Oxford and and sort of pokes fun at it because when the students come out in the morning it's only the women who are interested in studying 
right? The women who are new to Oxford, uh, it, it's, it has not at this point been very long that women have been allowed to come and yeah. right. you know, yeah. study at Oxford at all. Uh, and the men, and the men who have a much more storied past in Oxford are always just uh, drinking pale go, sherry going, in pubs, sneaking, <laughs> sneaking into the pubs to drink sherry and uh, uh, you know woo the women. Which yeah, how great. about the that? I, I, I love that kid. That kid is hilarious too because at first he's just making fun of him, right? About how he's using chocolates to like try to, you know, <laughs> but then it becomes material. To but the then plot. it becomes like he. <laughs> Poor Sally. I was going to ask you, Heidi, do you think that's oh, like... It's how... definitely condescending, but it's fine. It's part of the humor. It's You just got to let it be funny. So so do you think it's knowingly condescending though? Like, is he... Yes. Okay. So he knows that he's being condescending to her there, not... Yes. Just yeah, okay. the same way. He's like... I mean, at this point in literary history, it's not off limit to mock anybody, right? Like, there's no... So he mocks everybody. And one of the things he mocks is this whole idea of like young, pretty women just wanting to eat chocolate and be soothed from their fears. And I think it's funny. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, I'm waiting to be crucified for that one and for not liking Gaudy Knight. Um, yeah. Get her, that's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, you did. What's the um, whose body? That was the first one, right? Yeah, that's, yeah, they're all great. And even Gaudy Knight is, uh, it's probably the uh, best too late. novel, yeah, nice try. but yeah. I don't like it. So <laughs> you're allowed to not like stuff. It's yeah. fine. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, but Sean... I think they're going to take away my intellectual woman card for not liking well, a Gaudy Knight. That's just right, right out the, the window. intellectual woman book. <laughs> yeah. Do yep. you, Sean, do you have anything that's generally popular that you would like to declare that you don't like it so to take a little heat off Heidi here? <laughs> Probably so many that I can't even pick one out. I don't know. I'm sure. That's fine. I'll I'm take sure it. There I'll are take some. the heat. Yeah, I'll take I the wish heat that. For that. Uh, I wish I had one in my back pocket right now. It'll well, come. <laughs> just next week. Just think about yeah, it for that's a right. week and then. Yep. Come back. yep. All right. Any final thoughts, Heidi? Nope. Mm -mm. I'm any... excited to read it. I'll probably read it tonight. Final <laughs> lines or passages that you want to uh, just. No, point towards? there was like a line that made me laugh super hard, but I can't find it. But anyway, we got sad. many. Yeah, I'll try and find it for next time. I'll Sean? have some at the ready. Okay, Sean. Uh, I'm just, uh, just to go back to what we had talked about earlier. I'm excited going forward to see how he handles the the back quarter, especially of the novel, the denouement and such. Yeah, uh, because I my. Uh, appreciation and enjoyment of a mystery novel tends to hinge on how the revelation is handled. Uh, I'm very uh, eager to see. I, I trust Crispin at this point. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited to see how it goes forward. I found I was, it. Okay, Can go I ahead. Read it? Yeah, yeah. Come on. This made me laugh so hard. This was like 1030 at night last night. This is when... <laughs> Gadigan is talking about he's telling Fenn about how he found the body and he says but it was the police that were so awful he moaned in conclusion it wasn't that they were nasty or anything like that they were just horribly kind the way you are to people who haven't longed to live <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> really is good true that is great I um, man this is great go ahead before we, before what are your we, final thoughts well before we go I was wondering how you guys would feel about uh, playing a little game of um, unreadable, unreadable books. 
<laughs> or detestable characters in fiction. I like that they like <laughs> those awful gabblers, <laughs> Beatrice and Benedict. I like that they actually lay out the rules. I'm gonna spend like a whole page talking about them. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Both players must agree, and each player has five seconds in which to think of a character. If he can't, he misses his turn. The first player to miss his turn three times loses. They must be characters the author intended to be sympathetic. Then somebody else shows up. Yeah, Lady Shatterly and that gamekeeper fellow. (laughs) Those vulgar little man-hunting minxes in Pride and Prejudice. (laughs) Man-hunting minxes. That's so good. And then the guy hears him like making, like, you didn't. Do not, I beg of you, speak disrespectfully of Miss Austen. I have read all of her novels many, many times. Their gentleness, their breath of a superior and beautiful culture, their acute psychological insight. He paused, speechless, and emptied his glass at a gulp. He had a weak, thin face with rodent teeth. <laughs> anyway, Ulysses is kind of an unreadable book. Oh, That's my final thought. It is an unreadable book. Oh, I do like when he says one of them, I don't remember which one it is, but he says Ulysses and then, uh, oh, he says Rasselas, and then um, Cadigan's like, no, I like that I one. I like that one. Good God. <laughs> Clarissa then. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, thank you for a good time chatting here. Thank you to everyone who's listening and thank you to Assassin's Magazine for sponsoring. Check out assassinsmagazine.com or click that link in the show notes. For Heidi White, for Sean Johnson, I'm David Kern. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.